welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Today on the program, we have Lance Lopez. Uh, I had the chance to interview Lance about his new album, Trouble is Good, which comes out on July 14th. Uh, really cool album. He is a fucking badass uh, on the guitar. And the only way for you to know that is to go listen to the new album and check out his stuff online, of course, and everything that he's done in the past. But uh, really recommend uh, him. And we had a really great chat. Um, we'll get into that in just a moment. Before we do, I wanted to catch everybody up on a concert I went to just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was the uh, day that my uh, kids got out of school and um, I had set up with my son to uh, to go to a show, uh, go see Eric Hutchinson in concert and uh, at the Sweetwater in Mill Valley. Uh, a great little place to see a show, uh, just intimate and cool. I've been to a couple of shows there and uh, and I enjoyed it. And my son, who hasn't been to a ton of concerts, I wanted to expose him to uh, some great, some good music and to get him out to uh, to a live show. Uh, so um, I kind of geared him up and worked, worked him into the idea of going, uh, which after listening to the album, you know, a handful of times, we listened to it a bunch. Uh, so we would get to know the, the songs uh, he was on board with. My daughter did not want to go. Uh, she turned it down. Uh, so it was a, uh, a daddy dad a daddy Sunday, uh, really. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it was a lot of fun. There was also a deal that he made that I would download Pokemon Go uh, in exchange for him going to the concert. And uh, I'm not super stoked on having uh, games and uh, uh, that sort of thing on my phone. Uh, having my kids plugged into devices, I try and push back on that as much as I can, but it seemed like a fair trade to me because I wanted to go to this show. I wanted to go see Eric Hutchinson uh, play his uh, album Sounds Like This in its entirety uh, for the 15th anniversary tour. And uh, and I wanted one of my kids to join me for, uh, for that experience as well. Uh, Atticus got to go. Uh, and uh, so we went. We did some Pokemon Go, walked around streets, caught some Pokemon, and uh, and then went to the, the show. And the, the great thing, first and foremost, about taking a nine-year-old to a show like this, uh, Bare Bones Basics, uh, Eric had his acoustic guitar, his electric guitar, and his keyboard up on stage, only playing one of them at any given time, so it's not a full band, not too overwhelming my son who has some sensory stuff uh, and uh, and it wouldn't be too much. And there was no opener. So uh, don't have to sit through two or three bands that you don't know or don't necessarily care about, but can learn more about other music through, you know, this is a good one to take a, a nine-year-old boy to. So uh, the show starts out and um, and we uh, we're sitting front row center because that's how I do it. That's the best way to see a show, right? And uh, and then, like, after the first song or so, my son is kind of silently crying a little bit. Uh, and uh, and just, like, it was a little overwhelming to him, uh, really. Uh, and so we stepped out. We went outside into the hallway, let him FaceTime with his mom, uh, you know, gained his kind of composure, took, took a, a song beat, and, uh, uh, and then went back in. And the first songs, Eric started out with songs that were not from Sounds Like This, which is uh, exclusively what I uh, played for Atticus anytime we were in the car, right? Um, for that album, I didn't play any of the other hits. So uh, he, Eric started with some other newer stuff and worked his way back to uh, 2008's album, Sounds Like This. And, uh, and so uh, 
then we get into the songs like this and it's the songs that my son knows and he was cool and he had a, uh, he had a good time overall uh, and uh, and I think he uh, got perspective for enjoying the show a lot more by the time the show ended and uh, and I could tell him like we get uh, how many songs were left uh, in the set because I'd taken a picture of the set list and and he could have an idea of how much is left in the show and everything and kind of work his way toward that right so it was a whole kind of learning experience but really um you know uh, a ton of fun uh eric put on a, a really great show uh, it's been a couple of years since i've seen uh, eric hutchinson i think just before covid was was when um when we uh, when i saw him last and inter interviewed him but uh but my son was was into it. Eric played the the album in, in its entirety. He uh, he had some uh, good, great stories along the way as well, uh, and uh, and really made it uh, enjoyable. So uh, for those that are watching on YouTube, I'll share a couple of pictures. Uh, this is me and my son uh, uh, Atticus in front of uh, Sweetwater stage. Uh, my son rocking out uh, as. Uh, as you do when you're nine years old, uh, and uh, and then Eric taking the stage, um, playing you know playing some of his uh, his songs and and going through the songs that were really just an important part of my life. Um, my son got a set list. Also, he got Eric's set list at the end. The tour manager gave it to him, which was really cool. And then uh, he wanted to wait in line and uh, and get a T-shirt, uh, one of the ones that Eric's wearing, and that. I am actually wearing right now. Uh, uh, so we each got our uh, a shirt from the show, and and he asked Eric to uh, for his autograph, and um, and he uh, he got Eric to sign the set list uh, to him. So uh, so it's really cool. I think I'm going to frame this along with some pictures uh, and our wristbands from the event and make him a shadow box because I, for my son it'll really instill. Um, that he can do anything he puts his mind to, you know, and I'm going to remind him of that. <laughs> Sometimes he's really nervous and doesn't try new things very often. And so it's showing that he can do this new thing and, uh, and have a good time and really enjoy it uh, will mean a lot to him um, and help him take, you know, take on new challenges uh, that, he, that he comes across as he gets a, a little bit older. So uh, I want to play a couple songs from the set. Uh, I'm going to play one right now, and then I think we'll close uh, the show with one uh, a little bit later as well. Uh, and so there's no way to start out the uh, 15th anniversary of Sounds Like This by Eric Hutchinson other than uh, playing OK, It's All Right With Me. Here it is. You heard. <laughs>
Was okay, it's all right with me by Eric Hutchinson here on Concert Pipeline, and that takes us to our uh, interview, the main event for the day, uh, which is Lance Lopez. Oh man, we really had a fun chat, uh, Lance and I, and uh, and headed off really, really well. Uh, I start out with a great uh, reminding him of a great story that he shared when I interviewed him uh, seven years ago or so, uh, and. Uh, I just wanted to hear it again. I, I don't like repeating information in interviews when I inter interview people multiple times, but this is one that's just really, really cool. So without further ado, let's bring in Lance Lopez. Right. How are you doing today, Lance? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm hanging out. I'm, uh, I'm here in, in beautiful, sunny Nashville, Tennessee today. It's a, it's a beautiful June day. It's a summer day. Um, a day I'm very grateful to be alive for and enjoy the, the great community here in Nashville and be creative and work on music and just, uh, yeah, enjoying music and life today. How's the heat? Is it, is it insanely hot there right now? Um, it, it, it's, it's getting warm. It's nothing like Texas, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I'm most grateful for with, uh, you know, with, with, with the weather here in Nashville is that, um, you know, that it's, 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 it's a little milder, a lot cooler, you know, we've got the greenery of the mountains to surround us. It kind of cools us down. So, you know, um, and I love it, it, you know, cause, cause my girlfriend's from Chicago and this is her first summer in, in Nashville and so in the South, you know, <laughs> and so I'm just saying, just wait. And she's never been to Texas before. So I, I just, I'm telling her, I'm just like, wait till you experience Texas summer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, it's gnarly there right now. I know it's over a hundred, and uh, it's it's just gross, right? So well, yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. Where so where are you? Uh, I'm out in California, uh, outside of Sacramento. Oh, dig it, yeah. man! Northern Cat NorCal. I cool. Yeah. yeah, that's a. I got a lot of friends from that area, you know, and a lot of really good friends, a lot of great musicians, and lots of uh, lots of dear friends from Sacramento area. I'm sure you've played a good number of shows out this way as well, right? It's been a while, but yeah, usually when I came up North, I went to Modesto a lot, you know, and I, that, that became like kind of a home away from home for me. And I have a lot of dear friends in Modesto. So that kind of became that area kind of became my more my NorCal or central California hub. So, well, yeah. cool, man. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, and, uh, you mentioned your girlfriend, uh, she, she's a sword swallower, uh, and, that is a unique talent. So uh, did you meet through her? Like, tell me how you two met. Oh, it's a very unique story. Yeah. Katie Ramirez, she goes by the, the name Lorraine the Thrill. And she's an amazing performer. Um, circus, sideshow, variety act performer. You know, old school New York 
you know, she's a Coney Island veteran. She's actually performing up there on the 4th of July. Um, you know, and she just came back from there. She also performs in, in New York at the Slipper Room and in Chicago at the Green Mill and a lot of prestigious places. And, you know, her background is sword solving and she moved, uh, she moved here from New York. She's also a, a brilliant makeup artist, has worked on major productions. She comes from that world. And so we met uh, here in Nashville at a, at a little group of friends got together and I didn't know I saw her across the room. And I immediately went, oh, God, I'm going to fall in love with that girl. <laughs> when I saw her, you know, I saw her and I went, oh, God. And I was like, don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. Don't look at her. Don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. Hey, who are you? <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't look, couldn't look I was back. like, don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. Hey, what's going on? Who are you? And that's all the first things I said to her. I was like, who are you? And so, yeah, I'm very grateful that she's, uh, she's, you know, um, a brilliant performer. She's uh, performed here at Jack for Jack White's Third Man Records at the Blue Room. Um, here at the at the um, at Skull's Rainbow Room on Printer's Alley. She's a regular act there, variety act in their burlesque, burlesque performance. She comes out and just pretty much kind of levels the building with her. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, so she gets me. She's a creative. She's she hangs with creative. She comes from that New York and Chicago creative art scene so you know we have a connection because i grew up playing the blues with lucky peterson in chicago backing artists like otis rush and lucky and lonnie brooks and all these great chicago you know icons and so she grew up in the suburb of chicago so it was really cool to go back with her and see an entirely different side of chicago one in which i've never seen regularly because i was always downtown playing the blues at Kingston Mines or Buddy Guy Legends or, you know, a variety of those places, Roses or wherever, you know, back in the old days when I was hanging with Lucky up there, you know, and Lucky was my great introduction into the Chicago blues scene, uh, at, you know, at 18 years old, you know, so, uh, and there were other great guitar players down there like Albert Castigula, you know, who's part of the Blood Brothers with Mike Zito. He, uh, he was playing guitar with Junior Wells at that time. So we had a lot of connection as young guitar players. Albert was working with Junior Wells. I was working with Lucky Peterson, and we were around guys like Luther Allison, Buddy Guy, you know, Guitar Short, all these great, iconic, just, oh, yeah. you know, brilliant players. So going back to Chicago with, with Katie was, 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 was just a miraculous, so amazing happening because I got to see an entirely different side of the city. She drove me downtown and then it just, it's like, wow, I haven't seen this park without the blues festival being here or I haven't, it just was so nice to go there and not be working and playing. And then I had friends that when they found out I was there, Hey man, come sit in. you know. And, and I was there to meet her family and kind of see a whole other side of Chicago. So it's really beautiful. She's, she's the truly the love of my life. Um, she puts up with all of my insanity and it's amazing. You know, she's beautiful in all of her ways in inside and out. She's a spiritual practitioner. She's a makeup artist and a sword swallower and a creative, creative, inspiring, motivating artist. So I'm truly in love with this woman. And it's truly a gift to be that way, especially with, you know, the music kind of being released and love happening in my life. It's it's just I'm just super grateful right now. You know, it's really cool. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for well, asking. Congratulations. About, thanks for asking about Katie Lynn. Appreciate it. 
Oh, for sure, for sure. So interesting. I mean, and what a great dynamic you two have. Uh, it's so cool. Uh, um, go, going back, uh, I want to. Uh, I interviewed you like seven years ago or something. I don't know, 2016, however long that was. Yeah, a, a while ago. And one of the things that I remember us, us talking about that's that stuck with me, and I've interviewed, you know, a couple hundred bands since then, but it was just one of the coolest things was that your uh, your dad uh, was in the army with Elvis. And, uh, and so I want to, I want to hear about that again. I want to hear more, whatever you could tell me about, you know, kind of what you uh, took from that experience that your, your dad had, because obviously right. that trickled, trickled down to you, you know, right. not, not, you know, and not just, you know, that capacity, but I mean, that energy, right? Like, right. tell me about that. No, absolutely. Well, thank you for asking. My father was a great man. My father helped a lot of people. He was a homicide detective. He was a police officer. He was a U.S. Army veteran, and uh, he was a great individual. He was a he was an inspiring and motivating father. Uh, he was very hard on me when I was young, and it and it really drove me, you know, to be better and to practice more. Um, but my father was a great man, and one of the benefits of of his, uh, you know, of of not only his army service but being in in Louisiana. So what a lot of people don't realize is that Elvis Presley moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, I believe around 1955. And he lived in Shreveport for almost two years. And he was he had a residency at the Louisiana Hayride. He was too heavy metal for the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. And he was just, that's apparently that's the story. I don't know. I wasn't alive. I don't know. But he yeah, was yeah. like too hardcore, you know. So he yeah. came to, he went to Louisiana. And so KWKH broadcast and that's widely known, you know, KWKH broadcast the Louisiana Hayride. Well, my family on both sides, my mother and father's family, both would go. It was a huge deal in, in Louisiana. People would come from all over East Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, because that's the Arklatex. So people would come from all over. So my dad actually met Elvis backstage at the Louisiana Hayride and they kicked it and they, you know, became friends and we're hanging out back there doing whatever, hanging out. So <clears throat> as fate would have it, they both, Elvis was drafted. Frank was, was enlisted. He enlisted, my father, Frank Lopez, enlisted. And then uh, Elvis went to Fort Hood. Dad went to Fort Bragg. And then they both were stationed in Baumholder, Germany. And they got to Germany. And it was like, whoa, bro, you're the dude from... <laughs> I remember you from the Louis. Oh yeah. You know, and then it was, and then bam, you know, they were, they were, you know, that was the connection as fate would have it. It's a crazy story. So as a child, he was more a part of our family than a, than an iconic artist. He was my dad's friend. Um, and, and I knew that the relationship was super close, how humble my dad was with it. He wasn't very bragging about, Elvis Presley, he didn't use that in any capacity other than he talked about him as like he was my, I call Elvis Uncle E. Yeah. And, and, and I referred to him as that because he was my dad's brother. And I would ask as a child, you know, how did he die? What happened to him? And my dad would just really eloquently tell, sit me down as a child. So the real, the, the really, the thing was, is that when I saw the footage that my dad put on of, you know, this Betamax old school, that's how long ago, that's how old I am, you know, Betamax video, you know, 
before VH, well, I guess VHS was around, but, you know, putting on that 68 comeback special and seeing Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana and Elvis Presley and all those guys sitting in the round and Elvis in the black leather and then fucking playing. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I mean, no, uh, you can, no, it's curse early. It's sorry. Hard. Sorry. I didn't matter. I know we're on the, I know we're recording. Anyway, seeing, seeing that footage blew my mind as a toddler. I mean, blew, I mean, it was one of the most impactful beginning memories I ever had. And then to look next to that and see my dad and him in fatigues, you know, and know, oh, this was my dad's buddy. And so, and my mother, and so in December of 1977, Elvis Presley was coming to play the Hirsch Coliseum in Shreveport. And our whole family was going as a Christmas thing to meet Elvis. And I was going to be born as a newborn and, and, you know, have a blessing from the King. <laughs> and he died in a month before I was, I was born. And so that was the first words my mother said when it was announced was that she was pregnant with me and I would, I would never meet Elvis. That's her first word. She said is that that this baby will never meet Elvis because I we were scheduled to go and and see him and 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 my whole family. So um those records were super impactful. Scotty Moore, James Burton's parents lived down the street. James Burton was also a very accessible iconic guitar player that we have from Shreveport that you know played with Elvis during the Vegas years. I mean his family lived at the end of our street you know, and our, my dad would go and talk to him. And I just, I didn't, you know, I had no idea as a child. I just knew how impactful that music was to me. You know, I knew how impactful that rock and roll was to me. You know, I knew that, and I was so grateful. And one of the reasons that I say my father was such a great man, because he introduced me to the original real rock and roll, you know, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis Presley, you know, all these guys, there were iconic real deal rock. And that's where I started on guitar. So, you know, because it was like, that's what these guys are doing. Then that's rock and roll. Then, and then, you know, when my dad gave me my first guitar, it was like, here's a Chuck Berry record. Go learn all these songs. Oh, what a great upbringing. Like, I mean, like an influence, like to, to get out there and get after it. Right. And obviously you're supportive, you know, as you're kind of finding your ground and getting started too. When, when did you start playing shows? Um, Around the ages 13, 14, you know, we would do, um, we would do little junior high parties in North Dallas, you know, around Lake Highlands High School. Um, uh, Paul Leventino, who now manages Erica Badu, the, the neo-soul mm -hmm. goddess, you know, oh, yeah. um, Paul was a drummer and Paul was a Lake Highlands high school guy and and so uh, we, we had another friend, Chad Murray, God rest his soul. He passed away a year and a half ago, was my ride or die best friend, buddy that played bass with me and buddy miles and the whole thing. He was my best friend growing up. And so once Chad began to start playing bass, Paul was a drummer. Well, he used to, and he was already, he was booking us at, at, at high school parties. We were playing in living rooms, the gymnasiums, you know, it kind of began there. And Paul was like putting these, these parties together. We'd play like the field party, the keg party, you know, all the whole thing. And, um, and so it, it performing kind of began there as, as like fun, kind of just being a kid. And when I went to new Orleans to live with my father is once he saw how advanced, because I had those years in Texas where I had formed bands and really dove deep, had seen Stevie Ray Vaughan and BB King and, and Doyle Bram Hall and Bugs Henderson and Albert Collins and Gatemouth Brown and all these iconic performers and went home and emulated what they were doing. 
And then I went, I moved to New Orleans with my father is when he saw how advanced I had become. And he immediately took me out to begin playing with different bands and sitting in and pushing me on stage. And I got hired by bands. I started doing gigs with musicians around New Orleans. I was sitting in with like Art Neville and George Porter. And I didn't even know who these guys were. I was just a kid at home playing Cream Records. You know, yeah. I was at home learning, yeah. you know, Eric Clapton licks off Disraeli Gears, you know, and then it was like, and my dad would take me out and I was playing, you know, New Orleans, you know, Boogaloo and 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 funk and French Quarter funk and and learning how to stay on the one and grab a pocket, which then later paid off for me when I when when I became a a, a, a touring artist as a guitar player behind R and B and soul musicians and blues musicians, you know um, that that created that foundation. So it was it was in the early '90s when I moved to New Orleans that, that like a professional real career to where I went and played a gig and like didn't get a twelve pack of beer for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually got like a hundred bucks you know and it was like wow i just i can't believe i just made a hundred dollars for fuck you know it was like oh my god you know and yeah. and got and there so there was the french quarter and there was fat city you know and i would play literally all night long i would i would and i was like you know 14 15 years old and yeah. so you know, we would started a happy hour gig and I would play with maybe two or three different bands. And that's a lot of what I see a lot of these kids and these guys doing here and on Broadway, you know, yeah. here in Asheville, except back then it was, if you can imagine the meters, there was a lot of the French quarter style music as well as top, you know, oldies and R and B and, 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 you know, Motown and stacks really is a lot of what it was on top of Boogaloo French quarter meters you know, funk. So we would do a happy hour gig, like in Metairie, you know, and, and, and on the edge of Fat City, then go to the French Quarter, do the do the nine to 12 gig, and then go back to Fat City in Metairie and do an after hour gig from 2am to 5am. I would load out at 530. I would walk home with my guitar because I literally the club we lived in Fat City, our apartment my dad had was like, and Fat City was like a mini French Quarter yeah. within Metairie in Jefferson Parish. It was like a local thing and it was really, really cool. And, uh, and that's where I began playing music. And so, um, and I would walk home and from the after hours gig. I would put my guitar down. I would take a nap for about an hour and then go to school. I was going to say, and you're so a teenager at this point, right? And playing multiple gigs a day and squeezing school in on the side, right? So that, yeah. that, that's how it began. I mean, it began for me and I thought, I mean, just playing all night and it created a work ethic that I took, you know, into my career. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, and that's where I just, I was so grateful to cut my teeth and be in those bands and play in New Orleans and see all the craziness and absorb yeah. it. And it made, you know, and just, and, and take it all in. And, and you know, uh, I think my father didn't, my father never wanted me to be sheltered or he was like, get out there and, and, and hang. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's how my dad and you gotta be. And, you know, in some ways that was good. In some ways that kind of wasn't good. And I had to unlearn some of that behavior later on because I took it into life and it kind of began to hurt me, you know, but, you know, and it, and, it, and it still comes up and I still work on it, but it did help me to go out there and just kind of be fearless. And even though I was, that's the courage thing, right? I was totally yeah. terrified, but I went out and did it. Same as when I went on the road as a sideman, it was like, go out there and play and hang, you know? Yeah. 
And so did you start touring beyond New Orleans before you were even 18? Like, did you, at what point did you? No, we, we moved to Florida briefly, yeah. which is a market that's really, it's always so great for me. I, I was moved to Florida and finished high school down there. And um, we were down there briefly. And then we moved back to Dallas. And upon moving back to Dallas, I met Billy Gibbons. Yeah. And then I went on the road on the Chitlin circuit almost immediately. Um, I had a, I had a slot to go. I had a a pretty good little scholarship that I'd gotten from the, the band director at the high school I was at for Berkeley in Boston. I was considering doing that. And then we moved back to Dallas and I was still considering going to Boston school. And I got the offer to go on the road with Johnny Taylor. And my dad left it up to me. What do you want to do, man? You want to go up there to Boston and, and, you know, go to school and sit in a classroom, and play guitar. Do you want to get on a bus and go out there and play with some icons, Yeah, you know, and I was terrified and dude. So they gave me, you know, they gave me two, they gave me two records and I had to learn 36 songs within two days, you yeah. know, on, on a bus ride to Atlanta. So that's kind of how that looked. So it was, it was a completely difficult situation, but you know, cause back then we didn't have iPhones and YouTube and all that. It was a, it was a, it was a Sony Walkman with orange foam headphones and I had a Stratocaster on the headphone so that I could hear it with a notebook and a pen with the cassette fast forward and rewind and charting on a, on a bus ride to Atlanta from Dallas. So, and then it began playing with Bobby Blue Bland, Little Milton, Johnny Guitar Watson, you know, iconic people that, you know, that I was around that I I'm t- later that I had no clue that later on, just like when I was a kid in New Orleans, later on, I realized, you know, who they were once my heroes were showing up backstage. And then, you know, like, playing shows with white snake you know david coverdale's biggest hero is bobby blue bland i played with bobby blue bland when i was 17 years old and wow. i would sit with coverdale and tell him about playing shows with bobby blue bland you know also rod stewart's biggest hero bobby blue bland it was you know these guys were my were my um you know they were my uh, uh these were my bosses that's how yeah. i looked, you know as a kid i was just so scared to show up and do a great job so, you know, anyhow, man, so that's how, that's how the Chitlin circuit began. And, and, you know, it was, it was really cool. And, you know, it just led to playing with different artists, which then landed me with Lucky Peterson, which then landed me with Buddy Miles. Yeah. So in, the, in those early days, what would you say is like a mistake that you made that you kind of learned from and how can you help you become stronger? You know, I mean, I think that, I mean, probably as you're getting your feet wet and you're kind of trying to find your place, right. And you're among yeah. all these, you know, great musicians. Uh, I mean, there, there were some stumbles, like, like, what do you, what were some of your biggest takeaways from, from your experiences there? Man, I think, you know, just trying to hang with my heroes, you know, and I think that, you know, a lot of that was, was, um, you know, and I see a lot of really good kids coming up today that, you know, that, that know better, that have a better education and making mistakes that the same way. And I always try to, whatever mentorship that I'm trying to do with, with young artists and young musicians is always about, you know, keep your head on straight, don't get out of control. And don't, if, even if you see your heroes doing shit, you don't have to do that. And that's kind of what I, the mistakes I made. I wanted to be cool like my heroes. I wanted to do what they did because they were, they were the most amazing things I'd ever, I never even witnessed. It was like watching superheroes every day. Yeah. And so to watch drug use or the way that they, they, they behaved with women, you know, were, were things as a 17 year old kid, as a child, you know, because I was a child, those were, those were belief systems and behaviors that I adopted because I thought these guys are great. And that's what I'm going to do too. And that's, you're impressionable. Yeah. 
that's the false reality. And I, I learned a lot of real hard mistakes, you know, because I came home with the addiction. I came home with the problems and they went whatever they did. And I came home and I went, oh God, this is out of control. So I always try to convey that. And I think those are the biggest stumbling blocks that, you know, that is a day at a time. It is a day by day, you know, struggle. It is a day by day situation where we try to get ahead of it and do what we can do to, to stay okay. So I think that that was one of the biggest blunders for me as a, as a young impressionable artist was, you know, I need to do what my heroes did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of what I assume is one of your heroes, uh, Prince, uh, Prince gave you a, a, a golden eagle as a gift. And uh, you shared a picture of that recently on, online. Tell me, tell me about your interaction with Prince. Um, I met Prince in uh, 2002 uh, with Buddy Miles uh, on the Rainbow Children tour. He, uh, he came to Dallas on that tour to play at the Fair Park Music Hall. And I had, I was, I was not even aware I was, I was working. I had just moved back from Europe and buddy miles and I had, had resumed working together on some different projects. Uh, there was a, there was a beautiful studio in deep Ellum. And I was also doing a lot of hip hop sessions at that time, working with a lot of great hip hop artists. And, um, but I got a call from buddy miles and he told me, um, tomorrow we're going to meet Prince. We have a limousine arranged and, um, you know, look presentable and we're going to meet Prince. And I, I didn't even know Prince was playing in town. And so I, I went to Buddy's home um, and uh, a limo came and retrieved us at, I had to be there at 9 a.m., which I thought was completely out of control. I was like, wow, this is insane. So I was there at 9 a.m. and a limo arrived at like 1030 and then took us all to the venue. And um, we went and, uh, and we got to the venue early pre-sound check and we're walking down the hallway and this is a true story or we were walking down the hall of the backstage area and buddy has his cane. He's walking and he's yelling out Prince. Prince! And he's just yelling his name and Maceo Parker, James Brown's legendary saxophone player comes out. And he's like, man, what's all that noise? And there's Maceo, you know, and I'm like, wow, there's Maceo Parker, you know? And so we're continuing walking down the hall and a door opens right beside me. And I thought there were kids back there. I was like, somebody's kids are back here. And, a and I thought a child was coming and it was Prince. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God. And I'd never been in his presence. And he was, he walked out of a door and there he was two feet away from me. Yeah. And he just goes, Hey brother. And he gave me a big hug. And his wife at the time was, she was in there, you know, finishing getting dressed. And he came out, he just gave me this biggest, warmest hug was glad I was there, but he gave him a big hug and he goes, let's go jam. So Takumi, Takumi, his guitar tech, who uh, works with Candlebox and, and, and several other big artists. Um, he's an A, you know, big A-list, um, one of the great guitar techs, was there. And we talk about it regularly because I went through the guitars with Takumi, the, the Purple Rain Telecaster, the, 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 uh, the cymbal guitar. And, um, you know, and we had a jam. You know, Buddy played drums, Prince played keys, I played guitar. We had a, a jam at Soundcheck. And um, it was one of the most amazing moments of my life. Um, Prince didn't play guitar. He played keys only. And he was playing bass, left-handed bass and keys with Buddy. And so the thing about that was, Buddy, I didn't know that, but Buddy Miles's father was a bass, upright bass player and played with Prince's father. Prince's father, <laughs> piano player. Yes, he was a jazz pianist. And so Buddy, speaking of early beginnings, 
Buddy Miles was 13 years old playing straight ahead jazz was his with his father and Prince's father. Wow. So okay. We were kind of doing that same thing. Prince was playing keyboard with left-handed bass. Buddy was playing drums and I was playing Prince's guitar. So we were doing that same kind of situation and it was really cool. And they, then they told me the story and I had no idea. And I'm standing at the state on stage at Soundcheck and they tell me that, that his, that he played with his father and they were very close and they were like family. So um, it was a great day. And it, we went to uh, the great after party, great jam after that, Erica, speaking of Erica Badu, she was there with her sister and we had a great jam at a, at the after party. And uh you know, and it just continued on. I mean, he gave me, you know, at the end of the night, he gave me, um, you know, when, before the after party, he gave me a gift, um, you know, that that um, was a token of our friendship. And it was the golden eagle with the with the diamonds in it. And he gave Buddy, Buddy had already had an earpiece that he that he had his jeweler make that would go over the ear. And so I was just presented with that. And I thought it was pretty amazing because, you know, he vanishes after a show in a limo or he did God bless his mm -hmm. soul. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and so it was one of the first things that happened once he reappeared at the after party, he gave me that gift. And so I'll, I, I cherish it for that forever. It was such an amazing, he is the, he's truly the greatest performer I ever stood on stage with or ever witnessed period. That's, I mean, what an incredible experience. It must have been out, like out of body just to kind of be there and with, with Prince and using, you know, his guitar and just that, having that moment, you know. I'm mean, very grateful. Very, I mean, I Buddy, Buddy Miles introduced me into an entire world and I would forget because it was Buddy. You yeah. know, he was Buddy. He was like my family. He was like a, another adopted father or another uncle or, you know, he was like that. And so I would forget that he was Jimi Hendrix's drummer that he was Carlos Santana's drummer, that he was Michael Bloomfield's drummer. I would forget, because he was Buddy. And then we would go yeah. have these amazing experiences and I would go, oh yeah, I forgot who I'm rolling with. <laughs> now I remember. Thanks for yeah. jogging my memory. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about Rock to Recovery um, and kind of how yeah, that came about and your involvement with that, because that seems like such a, a good kind of cause that you're, that you're a part of. Yeah, I'm I'm supporting it and and gonna try to help out where I can. I think it's a great program. They go into facilities and they help, you know, they help uh, people with music therapy. So it's something that I've been interested in. So I'm I'm uh, I'm considering helping them and joining their team and and working with them on on various projects. Yeah. So we're still we're still talking about it. We're gonna see what's up. So it's it's a great cause. They go into facilities all over the country and they help people. And that's what I'm all about these days is going and helping. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to do the uh, Rock Legends cruise uh, next year, but you did it this year too, right? Have you done that a handful of times? We did. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the band. I'm in a band called Two Wolf. And Two Wolf is, an, is, is kind of a continuation of an old Southern rock band called Blackfoot. That was Ricky Medlock, Greg T. Walker, Jackson Spires, and Charlie Hargret. Ricky has is, is been in Leonard Skinner for many years. And they both were original Skinner members, by the way. Ricky Medlock and Greg T. Walker were both um, original band members. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great situation with uh, Greg T. Walker as the bass player. We have an original member of Blackfoot. So we do, uh, uh, primarily our set is Blackfoot material, but I do... I do originals. Chris Bell, the other guitar player, who was Bo Bice's guitar player for during his American Idol era, he's um, he also does originals. 
as well as Greg has originals. So we sprinkle in our own material in between the classic Blackfoot material. And so what Chris Bell and I try to do really is we're not really, we don't want to be really a tribute band, but we just try to convey their music the most authentic way we can while delivering our own, my own feel to it. You know, so yeah. I'm playing the the train train the hit from Blackfoot, but I'm I'm at, I'm playing it as Lance Lopez would play it. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like I'm I'm just trying to nail it exactly. I mean, I try to pay homage to the solos, and we try to get as close as we can. But it's all about the delivery of how would Lance Lopez or how would Chris Bell or Greg T. Walker play these songs in 2024. You know, and so that's the way that we're presenting it. We have new material that we're working on, as well as re-recording some old Blackfoot material. So Greg has been a mainstay on the, uh, on the cruise because, you know, everybody in the, uh, in the band is native. So it usually has okay. some native heritage, except I think the drummer, uh, the drummer, I think the drummer, our drummer, Rusty Valentine does not, but, but Chris Bell, Greg T and, and, and most definitely I do, we all have native American heritage. And so Naha puts on the, is, is part of the, 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 the charity that the cruise um, you know, benefits is Naha, the Native American Heritage Association. And so they they put this on. So Greg is is kind of has a mainstay and he's he's very well loved by that organization and they love our band. Um, we we do have a lot of native pride in the band. Um, you know, I'm Apache, um, Greg is Creek, um, you know, and and um Chris has you know his native heritage, and so. We, uh, you know, we, and, and they, and they did with Blackfoot. So, you know, we really try to, you know, try to continue that heritage as well with Two Wolf. So yeah, we're really excited to play um, uh, the Rock Legends Cruise this year. I think Sammy Hagar in the circle is headlining with uh, Jason Bonham playing drums, awesome. uh, which is an amazing show. Yeah. Uh, Billy Gibbons and the BFGs, you know, they're, they're going to be there. Uh, Tons of really great artists. So I'm just really, really excited to be a part of it again this year. You know, we did it last year with Deep Purple and Roger Daltrey. I got to know some of the members of The Who, including Simon Townsend, who's um, who's Pete's brother, you know, mm -hmm. and he's just was so loving and so complimentary and such a huge fan of Texas blues, you know, and telling me how he and his brother both are huge, huge blues guys. And um, that was really, it was just such a great hang you know, to be in the presence of great bands like The Who and Deep Purple. And then to play our set, you know, we did our deck set last year. And, and you know, Simon uh, McBride, who is now the new lead guitar player uh, in Deep Purple, is one of my longtime brothers. Like, we go, you know, 13, 14, 15 years back. Long you know, we go back many years. And I've, I see Simon on occasion at festivals in the U.K., and the last time I think I'd seen him, I was at one of my last shows, the Supersonic Blues Machine, where we played um, Ramblin' Man Fair. And I ran into him in Maidstone, England. And, uh, you know, and then, so to see Simon join Deep Purple was incredible. So I was, it was great to be on the, on the boat with him. And he brought the entire band to see this, the, the, the show on the deck. And it was such an honor to play. And, you know, there's, there's Don Airy, there's Roger Glover, there's Ian Pace. It was like, that's iconic. There's yeah. deep purple at our gig. 
You know, I mean, this is, and every kid learns how to play smoke on the water and here the guys are right in front of you. It was yeah. such, a, such an honor. It was such an honor. So, and we had such great hangs and so complimentary and they're so backing of two wolf. They were so supportive of two wolf that it was incredible to receive that kind of love from deep purple, such an iconic band. Yeah. What a, what a cool experience. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about your new album. Uh, Trouble is good. It's coming out uh, July 14th. And uh, and you had to kind of take a different approach with this one because, you, I mean, it was a lot of it was recorded in COVID. Right. And so you had to kind of get with the home studio process. Tell me tell me that process of making this album for you. You know, Trouble is Good came about. Um, you're right. During the during the during the COVID era. We also were planning to do a record. Any, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. You know, um, I came to Nashville. I took a big break um, to get my wellness together. I went into a, a therapeutic community and began working in that, um, you know, and, and did that sort of work to kind of recenter my wellness situation. And, um, and then it was time to kind of go back to playing music. You know, it was like, okay, it's, we, we're, we're, we're healing. It's time to go back. And we were trying to figure out and then bang COVID, you know, we had booked festivals in Scandinavia, you know, uh, we were working on dates in Germany and UK and bang, you know, like everybody else, you know? And so that's when it was like, okay, what do we do? And, um, I moved into a house, um, here in Nashville with two guys from LA and, um, and they were kind of in the, and more in the actor world and in the movie world and in and, and TV film and TV. And, um, so <clears throat> it did begin the home studio process. It was like, well, we have this house. We have the ability. Joey Sykes, who uh, had been a co-writer of mine during the supersonic blues machine era and during the mm -hmm. tell the truth era, you know, Joey and I had worked together. We met in Los Angeles. Uh, Joey Sykes sat and uh, sought me out. Um, and we worked with for, through Fabrizio Grassi, you know, with supersonic blues machine. So once that relationship kind of went away, then it became just Joey and I. Joey reached out to me and he wanted to make the record. And then I began to realize that a majority of the connections that began with Supersonic Blues Machine and that last album really began with Joey Sykes. Yeah. And it was just being filtered through Fabrizio Grassi, which is, you know, and they're still great friends and whatever, and it's all good. But but I then began to, to notice that. And so... Um, songs begin we had songs we had been working on even since the last record um you know that we wanted to start finishing um he had songs that were skeletons and we began you know fleshing out ideas um and we did go to studios here i had friends that west little brian allen you know these guys that have studios here in town you know west little the drummer we went over and we did we did began tracking you know songs in studios and i would take them home and then it did it, it forced me into getting a computer and and the monitors and the microphones and the and the whole thing and I, I i really got into it and you know enough to be efficient enough to yeah. lay down a vocal to cut a guitar track um we were doing the work tapes in the house where we had the vaulted ceilings and i had the drummer with the big bass drums and we were nailing some of the classic english sounds with the two mics on the stairwells i mean it was it was, it was amazing. You know, so yeah. we, that's what we did during COVID. We stacked up Marshall stacks. We put the drums. We had two drum kits in the, in the middle of the house, which for different sounds. And then I just began working and I would bring guys over 
and they, and Joey Sykes was fleshing out ideas in Los Angeles. I was fleshing out ideas with my guys in um, in Nashville, and we were just taking safe precautions. I would I would prepare a big meal. You know, I put on a lot of weight during COVID. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've done yeah. a lot of work to take it off now. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, I I made I prepared big meals and then brought the guys over to play music to flesh out the songs, and then I'd send them back to Joey, and then he would get a great artist like or a great musician like Brian Titchy, you know, Greg Bissonette, uh, Steve Ferroni. Um, you know, icons, you know, we had Jorgen Carlson from Government Mule, formerly of Government Mule. We had, um, you know, uh, Jack Daly from Lenny Kravitz's band. You know, Joey was taking my ideas back to LA and having iconic people. Then we went to New York. Then we decided, okay, we're hitting this kind of this wall. I moved to the house of tone. We were, we were moving forward with the record and, and we just decided we've got to go to New York. We knew Bobby Rondinelli was there. Uh, Bobby had replaced Cozy Powell and Rainbow with Richie Blackmore in the early 80s when Cozy Powell originally left uh, during the, uh, I think that was the Graham Bonnet era of Rainbow. Um, Bobby Rondinelli joined and Bobby had also been in Black Sabbath. He'd also been in the Scorpions. And so Danny Miranda, um, also who is in Blue, currently in Blue Oyster Cult, and also was it was the bass player during that Brian during Queen when when uh, Paul Rogers joined Queen. Danny was the bass player with Paul Rogers was fronting Queen Queen with Brian May, and so we had wanted to work together. So I was able to then orchestrate Bobby Rondinelli and Danny Miranda in New York, and we went to Long Island. And Joey and I went up there and cut you know the title track. And so to talk about the title and the title track. Uh, John Hyatt, the great John Hyatt and I were having a discussion during the middle of COVID and I was kind of getting a little hopeless, you know, it would just, the world was as just effed off as it was and how everything was happening. And I called John Hyatt and we're discussing it. And I just, that was just going, and I was talking about Bobby Blue Bland and yeah. Bobby Blue Bland had an old blues song called I Smell Trouble and Johnny Winter recut it. and. uh and and it's and I was talking about I smell trouble. And John Hyatt goes, trouble is good because we grow through trouble, and that's when we show up. You know, when we get when we get awareness around our behavior or awareness yeah. around what what's going on around us through from an outside source, that's then when we're able to grow. I think the world grew through COVID. The world technology grew through COVID. We all started to do different things that we normally didn't do, you know? And so that's what it's all about. It's about that trouble that hit all of us in the face. And then yeah. we all used it to do some different shit, you know, right. Excuse my language. I'm sorry, mom, yeah. but you know, my mom would be getting on to me right now. She'd be like, yeah. the language. come on. <laughs> Always looking out. What's important, right? And my mother would be, she's going to be like smacking me around after this. But anyway, what I'm saying, though, is that, you know, we grew through that whole trial and tribulation. And that's what, you know, I've grown through trial and tribulation, struggling with addiction and alcoholism and, and every emotional issue that I've ever trauma and everything else I've ever dealt with that I've had to try to sit and heal. So I think we all were traumatized during that shit. We yeah. all received trauma. We all have trauma. The world was fucking traumatized by that situation. So 
it's good. Like, okay, good. Now we get to all go in and do some deep work and uncover some shit and get all get better and do different things And we got, you know, we were pushed to the limits and we all started to do different stuff. So that's yeah. why it's good. You know, it, it's good. So anyway, man, and that's what it's about. It's like, you know, it kind of covers the title track covers a lot of that. I had that groove and that riff. I felt like Danny and, and, and Bobby were the, the rhythm section to nail it. You know, um, we went to New York, you know, it was great. It was, it was just, it was all good to cut all, cut all that over there. And so, yeah, we took an entirely different approach with this album, you know, more of, you know, it, it, it showcases more into the new wave of classic rock that's been happening that, you know, that's always been embedded within me, you know? And so it was really great to see a lot of new bands and I was able to really help. And that was the other thing I did during COVID is I repaired guitar amps. I worked on, I went into technical stuff. You know, I worked at the, the biggest amp shop in Nashville and worked on iconic guitar amplifiers for Greta Van Fleet, Garth Brooks, you know, Vince Gill, Keith Urban, all of these icons. I got to work on their, I got to work on all their stuff during COVID. So it was good. Like it, yeah. it pushed me into that, into that world. So, you know, that's a lot of, like I said, what, what I'm talking about with this. And so that's why I was like, well, let's do some different music. Let's yeah. do something. Let's do something. That's not just a Texas blues shuffle where it's going to Lance is just going to burn down the barn, you know, and eat, eat some ribs afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not yeah, like, yeah. It's like we, and, and we're going to probably go back and do that. That's always fun. And we love it. And that's what all my, my heroes and mentors did, but we wanted to showcase some rock and roll songs and do something different. You know, again, we wanted to, we wanted to grow, you know, we wanted to grow during COVID. We wanted to grow during this situation. So it was like, why can't we present some new music and Cleopatra records was all on board to present it to the world because they knew me as a blues artist. They know me as a, as a Texas blues guy and I can do that. But I, but you also categorize Lance Lopez and blues rock. So right. I wanted this album to be a blues rock record you know and not just like okay my guitar has a lot of gain on it but i'm still playing a blues song or some slow kind of ballady minor key thing this was and we have some of that on the record but it was that you know we wanted it to be presented in a way to where we know how how classic drums and bass and keys and everything else sounds on it and some of the musicians we presented together on these songs like we have you know wild country for instance we have brian titchy you know, the great Brian Titchy, who was in White Snake and Foreigner and Dead Daisies on drums. Jurgen Carlson from Government Mule. Uh -huh. uh, Buck Johnson from Aerosmith and the Hollywood Vampires on keyboard. Wow, and me. okay. And so we uh, assimilated these well, kind of these iconic groups to, to present these songs because it was like, if we're going to play rock and roll, let's play rock and roll with guys that play rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Get, get him out there i'm very proud of the record yeah. you know jam with me yeah. was a great was a great uh song yeah. that, that joey and i began to work on and you know we had greg bissonette yeah. on the track and 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 you know and the support that we have received from ringo's all-stars is incredible i mean steve lukather greg bissonette these are our brothers and so for greg yeah. to show up and to play on the first single is just what an honor you know what an honor to have the great because i you know I saw Greg Bissonette as a nine-year-old kid play with David Lee Roth and Steve I and Billy wow. you know, yeah. so, and, and I saw Greg and it was just like, oh my God, you know, to watch him with that band, yeah. you know, on the skyscraper tour with David Lee Roth, because yeah. I never see Van Halen with, I grew up in the van in, in Sammy Hagar's era, you know, right. and I saw that band many times and was always up front. 
So I, that was my only experience to see that era of David Lee Roth and Greg was the drummer. So if you fast forward 30, however many years later, 35 years later, and you know, the first single from this album, you know, Greg is playing drums. So it's very surreal for me. And I'm very grateful that 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 is has come to come to be for this album. Takes you back to your childhood, right? Like it just what a what a cool experience there to to have that. And uh with you know, alongside the the first single jam with me, you have you're doing the hashtag jam with Lance where you're giving someone uh, an opportunity to kind of win a jam session with you, right? We are. And it's something that it was really cool because, you know, I saw, I saw my good buddy, John Mayer doing that, you know, on TikTok or whatever and how they were having jam. And I was like, wow. And so I had an, another, uh, another good friend of mine um, who's a Boston artist, uh, Quinn Sullivan, young guitar player that was out with Buddy Guy as a child. We toured Europe together. And I saw a clip, I saw a TikTok or something of John Mayer and Quinn jamming. And so it was Quinn Sullivan and John Mayer on one of those virtual situations. And so I thought, what a great thing. What a cool idea. And have seen it a couple of more times, but that was kind of my introduction to it. And I always thought how great that was. And, and Quinn was always super excited about it, that he got the jam online with John Mayer. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I thought we thought this was going to be a great idea. You know, the, we uh, you know, it, it is part of the, the what the song is talking about. We're, we're talking about jam with me so trouble is good we grew we grew with the technology like me and you were talking right now so let's yeah. use that and let's jam you know yeah. that's what we did we we you know we we want to have a jam you know a jam session with uh you know with with all our aspiring guitar players and 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 cats that want to come and jam man that's what it's all about getting together community jamming and we were shut down from that man you know yeah. that was cut that's off from us so now dude it's on. It's on. <laughs> it's on it's on it's <laughs> on and that's on. what jam with me is about it's like now that okay cool now let's jam let's let's do it yeah so i want to jam you know we want to we want to bring you know a lucky uh a lucky supporter in and let's jam yeah well uh well i can't play the guitar but i see one right behind you and i'd be a fool if i didn't ask you if you would uh jam uh to kind of wind out the program here you okay, can say no, well so. i don't have any uh i don't have anything well i don't have an amp around but uh you yeah. know i got sugar it's, right here oh uh, yeah there we go there's good old sugar uh, got a little sugar i don't even know let me let me take a picture of sugar real quick hold on oh uh, yeah that's awesome i love it yeah, Billy Gibbons always loved sugar when the supersonic era. And uh, so I put his pickups in it. We were doing a gig and I had a buddy of mine make some in Texas and he made some old Les Paul style pickups. And we put it in it. Yeah. And, uh, and he was like, go get the white guitar. Billy was like, go get the white. I loved it. Just go get the white guitar, you know. And I'd be like, that's sugar. And so I'd go get sugar. And uh, so I got home off one of those tours. We were in some, I don't even know where we were. And I called Greg Savino at Sweetwater, you know, the great Sweetwater. Mm -hmm. And I ordered some Pearly Gates, some Seymour Duncans. And, um, you know, and so I put those in, which are Billy Gibbons signature pickups. And I brought it back out a couple of weeks later. We went to another big festival we were playing and I had the guitar and played it. And um, and he was like, yeah, I, remember, I never forget Gibbons turning around going, what'd you do to the white guitar? <laughs> and I said, I put your pickups in it. I put yeah. your pearly gates in it. So, and then also really quick story about sugar is there's some locking tuners on sugar 
There's like a, a, a bridge on here that, so I walked into a NAM party. This is connected to Steve Vai. I walked mm-hmm. into a NAM party uh, in Anaheim and, and they were like, bring your, bring your flying V. So, and it was really stock at that time. It was just a straight 67 reissue. So I bring it in with me. And then as soon as I walk in the party, they pull it out of my hand. And then they take me to meet all these iconic people that are in the studio and we're having this big mixer. And then I go into this other room and it's laid down on the table and Steve Vai's legendary guitar tech, Thomas Nordig, is there dismantling the bridge and putting a new bridge and new tuners and all my, and I'm like, what'd you do to my guitar? (laughs) Dude, like, what are you doing to my guitar? And yeah. like, so the graph tech company that all they all like swooped in on me and they're like, Lance, we're gonna do this. You know, we're doing this your turn. And you know, and then it's Steve Vai's guy. So what are you gonna yeah. say? Like, You're not you gonna know, say like, some yeah. rando, yeah. you know, yeah. amateur, like this dude works at, you know, his buddy's garage. You know, this was like, yeah. you know, so you're going. So he did his graphite saddles and a in a different bridge and a locking tuner. So we have it on there and it's really cool. And we put the we put the pearly gates in there. So that's a really cool story about sugar, man. So anyhow, bro, thanks so much for having me, man. It's been such a blast hanging with you today. I hope you're having some beautiful weather out there in Sacramento today. And everybody listening, please support Trouble is Good. It's available pre-order now. Comes out July 14th. Orange Vinyl Limited Edition. Please get a copy of that orange vinyl. You know, and if you do get a copy, I also want to offer this. We'll give you the house of tone address. You can ship it to me. I'll sign it and send it back to you. So nice. And then we have the hashtag jam with Lance. We're going to be jamming. We're going to be launching this, this contest. We want everybody to get involved because I want to jam with some cats, man. I want to jam with you, man. So let's, let's jam. Yeah. I love it. And the new album's great. And, uh, and I know thank you're excited you. for it to get out and, you know, play shows with it and everything. And you're an amazing guitarist. And thank you, Lance, for taking the time today. I really Thank you it. so, so much. I look forward to seeing you soon, man. It's so great to talk to you again. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much. Good to see you, man. Thanks, Lance. You have a good one. Okay. You too, man. Ciao. That was my interview with Lance Lopez here on Concert Pipeline. And that takes us to the final segment on the program, the music news. I have a couple of stories to wind us out here today. Really, they're almost all exclusively from uh, Glastonbury Festival. So uh, we're going to dig right in because the Glastonbury Festival was the lineup and the who's who, of, you know, anybody who was at a concert was at Glastonbury Festival. So um, the uh, let's let's start out with this this first one. Um, Britney Spears fans react after she doesn't appear with Elton John. Uh, so there have been rumors about her uh, performing with Elton John uh, for her first appearance in five years as part of Elton John's set. Uh, the story is that that didn't happen and people are not stoked about it. Uh, John was confirmed to be joined by four special guests at his headline set, uh, which uh, included uh, the Killers, Bryn Flowers, among others. But uh, and he did Tiny Dancer with Brendan Flowers, and he uh, did some other songs with some other folks. Um, and Britney fans shared their disappointment online and her not returning to the stage. Uh, and, and others defended uh, the singer for the no-show as there was no um, expectation that she would be there. This is what a rumor is, right? So, um, so that's how that goes. Uh, all right. 
Paul McCartney was uh, at Glastonbury Festival. There was a rumor, another rumor here, uh, that he was going to be joining Guns N' Roses uh, on stage uh, for their set. Uh, that didn't happen, but fans did see him soaking up the sun uh, and enjoying the festival. Um, and uh, someone who did join uh, Guns N' Roses on stage was Mr. Dave Grohl to play Paradise City with Guns N' Roses, which is awesome. This is not the first time that Dave Grohl has joined Guns N' Roses on stage playing Paradise City. Uh, I actually got the chance to see Dave Grohl playing Paradise City with Guns N' Roses at Bottle Rock uh, just a couple of years back and was super close, got great video. Uh, video uh, went on, uh, was put online and went viral uh, until YouTube took it down for copyright purposes. And, and uh, uh, Rolling Stone had even used my video uh, from that performance on, as their article, part of their article on uh, Guns N' Roses set at Bottle Rock. So that was one of my highlights of my life uh, as a, a rock journalist of sorts, uh, getting to see that in the first place. Um, we have more on Dave Grohl in a little bit. The Dave Grohl news is not over. Um, but pretty cool that he, he came out and, uh, and played uh, with, with them as well. And I would have expected Paul McCartney to be there too, because him and Dave Grohl are really cool, but didn't, ha didn't come out for a performance. Uh, all right. Pink uh, stunned was stunned as fan throws mother's ashes on stage at BST Hyde Park. Uh, so I don't think that's Glastonbury, but it's close enough, right? Uh, but she was performing her headline set at Hyde Park in London over the weekend, and she noticed a clear bag being thrown by her feet. The moment took place during a rendition of her 2001 hit, Just Like a Pill. Uh, and in footage shared by fans at the show, the singer can be seen bending down to look at the bag and briefly stopping singing as she tried to work out what the contents were. Uh, wait, is this your mom? She asked, giving confused looks to someone in the crowd and nervously laughing. I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, Pink uh, is then seen picking up the bag and moving it to the side of the stage before continuing with the song. There's footage, of course, because people record everything. Um, and uh, fans have shared their thoughts on the moment. She handled it well, because I definitely be mad that someone handed me their mom's ashes. I just uh, saw another video of a guy coming out to his mom in front of uh, Babe Rexa. So yes, boundaries. I understand why some celebrities are standoffish now. Uh, and uh, there, so someone offers some insight into what supposedly made the fan throw the ashes. Okay, so my friends are stood near this lady uh, and the backstory is her mom couldn't get out much um, uh, as she was so ill when alive. So this lady takes her ashes places. So uh, she uh, gets out now and every, uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, it gives this woman comfort. Uh, uh, then that's up to her. Uh, so no, not really. You don't get to take your mom to uh, shows, and, you know, posthumous and throw her on stage to, uh, you know, to add concerts at, at the performers. No, not, nope, not cool. I shut that one down. I disagree. Nope. Um, okay. Uh, and then the last story I have uh, for today's episode of Concert Pipeline, back to Dave Grohl. Yes, we try and wrap every episode with Dave Grohl's story or Foo Fighters if we can. Uh, Dave Grohl caught the train to Glastonbury. Uh, they had a not-so-secret set. Uh, and uh, so they were scheduled to perform as the Churnups, and it was a spectacular affair. McGraw has also made headlines for his transport of choice, the Great Western Rail. 
They took the 11 a.m. train from London to Glastonbury, getting off at Bath Spa, where minibuses then took the band to the festival. Um, and even rock royalty knows that there's no better way to travel to Glastonbury than by train, uh, GWR tweeted. You never know who's going to turn up and on board our trains. Uh, and so Girl has performed uh, three times so far in Glastonbury. Uh, and so they uh, they put, put on a, a good set. I think a shorter one uh, also. But, uh, but there's a, a second D uh, Dave Grohl story. Uh, he uh, apparently the other night, um, a, about a week ago, at uh, Rogers in Arkansas, uh, uh, there they had a big, huge set. And in our uh, in our episode last week, we talked about how they're working in their ten minute song, "The Teacher," which is a quite a commitment for a set list. Well, that came out in Foo Fighters Encore, and while Everlong was uh, on the set list at, uh, at the bottom, uh, that was not played. And that is breaking news for any Foo Fighters fans, because they always close their sets out with Everlong. It's just how they end their show. Um, dating back to a handful of years ago when I saw Foo Fighters at, at Bottle Rock, uh, they actually were playing Everlong. And then uh, the set had gone just a couple minutes too long. They were in the middle of Everlong and uh, it was cut off by curfew, which hit, hit at 10, 10 p.m. sharp. Uh, so they kept playing the song. Uh, and as someone who's right up against the stage, uh, I didn't even notice that the sound was uh, cut out because I was hearing it live right there, right? I didn't know that they had cut the, the sound out really when I was watching it, but, uh, but they play that every time. And so uh, Dave addressed the Everlong drama from, from the other night. Um, and this is what he has to say. All these weird motherfuckers start blowing up my daughter's TikTok like, we need to have a talk. Your dad didn't fucking play Everlong last night. I, I fucking, I just want you to know I got married to that song and I can't believe I came all the way down there and you didn't play that fucking song. Fuck you, motherfuckers. Oh my god. So tonight we're gonna play it ten times. How about that? He's, I think he went on to say that he, uh, there's only been four times that they didn't play it, like, ever or something. People were nerding out over ever long. It's how they choose to end the show. Uh, and uh, and they didn't have the opportunity to do it because the teacher. So they chose the teacher over ever long. And, uh, you know, he just went on with the set list, and it was apparently too much packed into uh, uh, the evening before curfew hit again, right? So, uh, all right. That is our show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, next week on Concert Pipeline, we have Vonda Shepard joining the program. Uh, you may not know Vonda, but she has a, a great voice. Uh, she, uh, if you were a fan of Ally McBeal, you absolutely know Vonda because uh, she was very much a big part of that show, produced over 500 songs for Ally McBeal, uh, and sang the theme song. Uh, it was all up about that, uh, that show um, and very much a part of it. We'll dig into that and more. Uh, next week with Vonda Shepherd. So that is the program for today. Uh, we're going to close this out with one more song from Eric Hutchinson's show at uh, Sweetwater in Mill Valley. Uh, this is the song he played in his encore, and this is rock and roll. So for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time. I was talking to the guys backstage. This is the best show we've had all year. So thank you so much for coming out.
beginning here, everybody. I hope you've had a great time. I hope you'll sing along with this last song. Stand up and dance, you could. I'm not gonna stop you.